Well, last week we started a series called The Land of the Bible. And uh, by the way, a number of people were like, that was awesome. Um, understanding the map upon which the whole thing is played, the whole Bible, uh, Old and New Testament, most of it takes place right there in the land of Israel. So we are taking you on a tour of Israel. Now, last week, this week we're going to look at what happened around the Sea of Galilee. Last week we took you to Caesarea, so here's, here's the map, and uh, we pointed out that you would fly into Tel Aviv today, and here's Jerusalem, but you won't go there first. You'd probably go up to Caesarea, up the seacoast uh, a few miles. And we looked at um, the fact that they unearthed a beautiful stadium there. Who's playing there next this summer? Hall and Oates. And Snoop Dogg, yes. <laughs> Jesus would be proud, wouldn't he? All right. And then, oh, we learned that uh, one of the Herods was speaking in this, uh, this stadium, and he saw an owl, and he dropped down in pain, and the Bible says uh, he was eaten by worms and died. So he had abdominal worms. And he suffered for several days, and then he died. So that was fun. Um, Now, today, what we're going to do is we're going to go from Caesarea. We're going to get in a bus, and we're going to travel up here just a, a, a few miles to the Sea of Galilee. This is in the northern part of Israel. And now here's what's kind of fun. You can't see the sea because there's a a range of mountains and hills uh, covering it. So as you're taking your bus trip, you're actually coming from down here, you go to this place called Mount Arbel, all right? And you can't see the sea, and you park, and you get off the bus, and you have to walk up a big hill, all right? And here here it is. You're going to walk up here. And at a certain point, boom. You see it. And there is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Now, what they tell you to do when you're standing there is take your your thumb and your your forefinger. Can you do that and kind of scrunch the whole... Can you see the whole sea in between your thumb and your forefinger? See that? What, What you're doing there is in between your thumb and your forefinger, that is where Jesus spent virtually all of his ministry right there. Now, he went down to Jerusalem a number of times, but most of his three years were spent right here in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he chose his apostles. That's where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. That's where he fed the 5,000. That's where he virtually healed entire villages of, of people who were sick. It's where he cast the demons into the pigs and they went into the sea. But here's what I want you to see. This 
is where, especially on the sea, this is where he revealed that he was God. Now, he did it slowly. Because if, if he just showed up and said, hey, I'm God, people would have freaked out. People wouldn't have accepted it. So he's slowly revealing that he is God. And we're going to take six stops here. All right? Three of the stops are going to be miracles that take place on the sea itself. And then three of the stops are going to be in these three cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, because those three are mentioned uh, in a certain scripture. So we're going to take six stops this morning. So let's first talk about the calming of the storm. So here, uh, Jesus is in a boat with the 12 apostles, and um, they are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. Fun fact, um, Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level. Okay. And there's mountains around it or, or hills around it. And apparently, it's, it creates the perfect storm to create a perfect storm. All right, Something to do with the humidity and the, uh, the wind going off the mountains and then the low. And so it can be a beautiful sunny day. Then all of a sudden, the wind stirs up and it creates a storm. All right? It's a cauldron of crazy weather. So here they are in probably Peter's boat, sailing across the sea, and the storm comes up. This is a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And I love this, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. They had a nice little cushion back there, and um, they're freaking out, life's out of control, everything's out of control, we're going to die. And Jesus, he's asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. Right? They woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? <laughs> Which is a very Jewish way. Oh, don't you care that we are perishing? We're going to die and you don't care. You're sleeping on the kit. Get up. You know, that's my Jewish and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Now stop right there. Um, if you were Jewish, you went to synagogue every Saturday, and your hymn book was not Caleb, or Moody, it was the book of Psalms. So they would have known all the Psalms, and they would have been familiar that in Psalm 107, the psalmist uh, refers to a time, and, and I believe this is a metaphor that he's using, but Israel's always needing to be rescued from their sin, from idolatry, from war. And the picture here is that Israel is on a ship in a storm, and they cry out to be rescued. Right? They reeled and staggered like drunken men, 
and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord. Todd did this earlier, where the Lord in, in Isaiah is God. And then we go to Philippians, and the Lord is Jesus. Well, here they're crying to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them into their desired haven. So a metaphor, a picture in Israel's mind of how God works is he can calm the storm. And here Jesus literally calms the storm. But now, so everything's calm. You can hear the birds chirping. It's calm glass. But what's their state now? He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. One translation says they were terrified. And said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. They were scared before. Now they're terrified. Why? Well, the only thing more terrifying than having creation raging out of control outside of your boat is realizing that the Lord of creation is in your boat. Right? Now, I don't know that they got the full picture yet that he is God, but they're starting to get the picture. All right, so this is miracle number one, the calming of the, of the uh, storm on the sea. All right, then next, the great catch. Okay, so here, this is early in the ministry. He's up around the northern part of, of the Sea of Galilee, and crowds are coming because he's healing lots of people. So thousands of people come to him, and it says, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. So Peter owns a boat, right? He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So you go, why would he do that? Wouldn't it be hard to hear? He's out on the sea. Well, um, in Israel... This is called the Sower's Cove. It's on the northern part uh, of, of the Sea of Galilee. And they have discovered that if you put a boat right there, about 7,000 people can sit on this little hillside, and it's a perfect amphitheater where you can talk in a normal voice and 7,000 people and here you give a sermon. That wasn't the miracle, though. It's pretty cool. And by the way, where they believe Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, it's called the Mount of Beatitudes, same thing, little natural amphitheater up on the mountain. Because people, critics have said, well, how could one guy preach to 5,000 men plus their wives, plus there could have been 15,000 people there? Mm Mm-hmm. Divine amphitheater built 
by God. Jesus knew exactly where it was. Okay? So here he is in the, uh, the, the cove, and he's preaching. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now, now you know, thing, something I never noticed before. His three major miracles, all done on the water, are not done for the crowd. They're done for the disciples. Right? He's building their faith. Most of the crowd leaves, but he's building the faith of the disciples. So, it's Peter's boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into, deep, uh, into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. All right, so um, Peter's a professional fisherman. He's, he grew up on the Sea of Galilee. It's what he does for a living. All right, this would be like, um, let's say you, it was bring your pastor to work day. Right? So we go to, what do you do, Ryan? Air traffic control. Okay, so I'm sitting next to Ryan eating my sandwich, and, and I go, hey, Ryan, don't land any planes at O'Hare. Pittsburgh, land them there. And he looks at me and he goes, idiot. I've been doing this for a few years. You preach, I'll take care of the air, all right? So that's, that's kind of what's going on here, right, Peter? Like, and, and Peter's, he goes, we know that the fish come up at night, all right? There's theories about why the bugs are there or because they, they, the sun scares them down, whatever. But they've been fishing all night, not one fish. So he says to Jesus, you know, go out further. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Two boats. All right? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Right? So you better listen to me when I come to work. Right? So, now, um, I don't know that we, we understand how many, fish this was, the, how many fish there were here. So the boat, you know, they found, the, they call it the Jesus boat over there. They found like a first century boat and you can go to the museum, and they've reconstructed it, and it's just a, like a little boat. I don't think that comes close to the size of Peter's boat here. Because you needed to fit, and in fact, can, I'm, let's just do this to keep you awake. I need 12 disciples, 12 big, burly guys. Where's Brian Petrie? <laughs> Where's Richard? <laughs> Kevin, Ryan, George, Peter, (laughs) Bill, Tim, come on. Come on up here. How many do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 
Okay. All right. And you be Jesus. <laughs> Got a promotion. Where was Jesus? Sleeping in the front. <laughs> <laughs> on a cushion. He was on a cushion. There you go. <laughs> this looks like the Last Supper. <laughs> so there's a boat, and then he hauls in a net so full of fish that the boat starts to sink, and they call a second boat. Two boats ready to sink because that's how many fish they caught in one cast. Some people want to go, well, he just saw a school of fish swimming by. No, this was a miracle. All right, give your disciples a big hand, all right? Thanks, George. <laughs> so so the, the, uh, the, other, the other hint that they're starting to get that this is God. Do you remember when Isaiah went into the temple and he saw the Lord? What was his response? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean. He's convicted of his sin. What's going on here with Peter? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's not the fish. It's that Peter's starting to realize that this is God, okay? But now, at some point, what if, um, what if they start to think, well, the calming of the storm, that could have been an amazing coincidence. The catching of the fish, every fisherman gets lucky every now and then, right? So now there's one more miracle on the sea that seals the deal. Walking on water. Um, and after they had taken leave of them. So, so after the apostles had taken leave of the crowd, he went up on the mountain to pray. Maybe he was up on Mount Arbel praying. Okay. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So they're out there rowing, but he's watching And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, so 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. Okay. Now, he meant to pass by them. We'll come back to that in a second. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, um, up to this point, they're wondering who is this guy. And here, they're, they're wondering who this guy is, right? But here, let me point out six clues that the gospel writers give us to clearly tell us this is God, okay? Clue, well, clue number one, he's walking on the water, How's that one? All right. And by the way, the Sea of Galilee is 100, uh, 100 to 150 feet deep. So some people said, well, it must have been shallow. He knew where the stones were. No, 150 feet. They're in the middle of the, the sea. 
Okay? So number one, he's walking on water. Number two, interesting, he meant to pass by them. Now, people have read that, and they said, oh, well, he meant to sneak by them. Well, if, if he's going to go walking out on the sea, what's he doing sneaking by them? Doesn't he want to be seen? Well, what's interesting is this is the same phrase that is used in Exodus when God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, and Moses uh, says to God, show me your glory. And God says, well, I can't because uh, you'll die. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, cover your eyes, and I will pass by. In other words, this phrase does not mean to sneak by so I can't be revealed. It means to walk by so I can be revealed. So first, he walks on water. Second, he meant to reveal himself by passing by. Third thing, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Now, in the book of Job, it speaks of God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And I'm told that in the Septuagint, the Greek version, it's the exact same phraseology. So um, Mark, who's writing this, I think he's got a copy of the Greek Old Testament, and he's using phrases that line up to point out just like God passed by, Jesus passed by. Just like God tramples the, the waves, Jesus tramples the waves. Okay, Then, um, watch this. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, it is I is kind of a strange translation. It's, the, the Greek is ego eimi which all throughout John, when Jesus says, um, I am, okay, that's what it is. It's I am. It's the same phrase that God used to Moses when, when he appears in the burning bush. Moses says, well, who's, who should I tell them sent me? Tell them I am sent you. It's the name for God, Jehovah. Jesus is using the name for God here. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. That's the fourth clue. But now, let's switch from Mark's gospel to Matthew's gospel. It's interesting. Mark, many people believe, was Peter's scribe. In other words, Mark is Peter's gospel. Okay? But in Mark, there's the, the story of Peter walking on the water isn't there. Why? Maybe humility? I don't know. But in Matthew's gospel, we get the fuller story. So they see Jesus walking on the water, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Now, there again, we've got the wind ceasing, right? 
And what's, what's the lesson of Peter walking on the water? Peter, Peter, he wants to be where Jesus is. And, you know, he's thinking if Jesus can do amazing things, maybe Jesus can allow me to do amazing things. And he does. He walks on the water. But then, why does he start to sink? He's looking around. He starts looking around. Looking at the wind. Looking at... Quit looking around. Keep your eyes on Jesus, people. Oh, what's so-and-so think? What's so, what are they going to say? What are, what are people in church going to do? What are you doing looking at? Keep your eyes on Jesus. So there's a whole lesson there. Right? But now, what's their reaction? And those in the boat worshipped him. Now, all throughout Scripture, when there's inappropriate worship, it gets corrected. Here, Jesus receives their worship. Guess what? He's God. And then they conclude, truly, you are the Son of God. And for a Jew to call somebody the Son of God, that is equating them with God. Remember in John's Gospel, Jesus called himself the Son of God, and they picked up stones to stone him. So, six clues in this story about Jesus walking on the water that all reveal his divinity, that he is God, okay? Now, those are our three stops on the water. Let's now go to three towns that Jesus goes to, all right? Um, Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. So, Capernaum is here. Oh, little quiz question. Where did Jesus live? Grew up in Nazareth, but he moved. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, which fulfills a prophecy by Isaiah that a great light would shine in Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay? He, he uh, lived in Capernaum when he did ministry. Right? So um, if you go to Israel you will stop in Capernaum. This is a uh, uh, synagogue that they've unearthed and uh, rebuilt. It's, and we're told that Jesus preached uh, in the, the synagogues in general in the, the region, but specifically he preached in this synagogue. Now this is... A, uh, what, what you find in Israel is there's layer upon layer upon layer of civilization. This is a 3rd or 4th century uh, synagogue, but underneath it is the 1st century synagogue that Jesus would have preached in. So you can actually sit on the ground where Jesus would have preached. Okay, Now, um, Next to this synagogue, so here's the synagogue, is this black stone, and they are fairly convinced that that is Peter's house. Isn't it convenient that the house <laughs> and the synagogue are right next to each other? Ticket, please. Ticket. No, I, I, you know, I, they, they actually, um, Constantine's mother, what was her name? Mrs. Constantine. Helena, yeah, Helena, um, 
went to Jerusalem and to Israel and found these holy sites. But she didn't just go, oh, I declare that's Peter's. She interviewed the people who were there. And so there were some, uh, some oral traditions. So, so you have to say this could have been Peter's house right here. Okay. Now, we are told when Jesus heals the paralytic, that he was in Capernaum in a house. Now, I don't know that Jesus put a down payment and bought a house. Maybe he was with Peter. Maybe he stayed with Peter. So there's a, there's a high probability that this is the house in which Jesus healed the paralytic. All right, so you remember the story? He's in a house teaching, and as he's teaching, there's this rumbling going on on the roof, and they move, they move the, uh, the, the branches aside. And there are four friends who have their friend who's paralyzed, can't move. And they lower him down on ropes on his mat right in front of them. Like if I'm teaching here, and all of a sudden these tiles move aside, and there's a guy on a, on a mat lowered right down in front. And I think the, the, the assumption is, could you please heal him? Right? But here's what happens. When Jesus saw their faith, referring to the friends and probably the man himself, he said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. How disappointing is that? Right? What, don't you want to see him healed? There, had, there, there was probably this sigh of, oh. Then the Pharisees, the know-it-alls, they are offended. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So now, uh, in a a sense, we can all forgive one another. But Jesus is claiming, he's not saying that this, this... paralytic has personally offended him and he's forgiving him. He is acting in the place of God by saying, I forgive your sins. And they they accurately catch him and they go, who does he think he is? God? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to themselves, why do you question these things in your hearts? Imagine being one of the scribes. He knows what I'm thinking. All right? Which, now, this is the, the whole key right here, verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, you've got to get the answer to the question right. I think we might say, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Well, no, the, the, what he's saying is what's actually harder to do? to forgive sins, which only God can do, or to heal a guy, which many prophets have done. He's actually saying the harder thing is to truly forgive this guy's sins, right? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Here's what he's doing. 
he's saying, I'm going to do the easier, visible thing, heal the guy, to show you that I have authority to, to do the harder, invisible thing, forgive sins, which only God can do. Again, Jesus is revealing his divinity to them. This, this, is, this is not just a sermon on Bible lands. This is a sermon uh, on apologetics showing you that Christ is God. Yeah, the Bible says he's God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There you go. But here are all these subtle and not-so-subtle stories screaming out that Jesus is God. Right? All right? So uh, here is Capernaum. Let's now go from Capernaum to Bethsaida. All right? So um, what happened in Bethsaida? Well, a couple things. One is he heals a blind man. But this is a strange healing. Because in this healing, it's a two-stage event. Remember, he spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on the guy's eyes. And he opens his eyes. And Jesus says, can you see? And he goes, I see kind of, but men look like trees walking. You know why? He had mud in his eyes. No. Um, so, so, so Jesus does some more stuff to him, and now he sees 2020, maybe 2030. What's, what is it? What's, the, what's, the, like, what's super good? 2020, okay. All right. Now, we don't know why it was a two-stage healing, but here's what some theologians believe. His miracle was a parable kind of explaining the... So, so this is his physical sight, but it's a physical parable explaining the spiritual state that most of these people were in. They were starting to get it, but not fully yet. Sounds good to me. Okay, So that's one thing that happens in Bethsaida. But you know what else happens near Bethsaida? 5,000 people, that's just the men, throw in the wives, throw in the children, go to hear him preach. They forgot their lunch. One little boy has a lunch, five loaves, two fish. He feeds the whole multitude with one lunch. Now, what's the point? Feed the poor? I think he tells us the point in John 6. He's saying, don't work for food that perishes, but seek after that food which can really feed you. What food? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The whole physical miracle was just a picture pointing to him. 
I am the only thing that will satisfy. Now, again, either he's the most arrogant person on the planet or he's God. He is saying only God can satisfy. And I am God. Remember the, the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon tries all these things. Wine, women, song, wisdom. None of it satisfies. Conclusion, only God satisfies. Jesus, I fed you all. That's a picture pointing to me. Only I satisfy because I am God. Now, last place we want to go. So we've seen five stops, all of them pointing to his divinity. Last place, Chorazin. Now, there is not a specific miracle claimed or attached to the city of Chorazin, but clearly Jesus did miracles there uh, because uh, it mentions, he mentions this town specifically when he brings condemnation upon the whole region. Okay? After three years of ministry, finally he calls them to believe in him, to repent and believe in him. What's their response? (sighs) Yawn. It must have been daylight savings time when he called them. They're bored. They're apathetic. So he condemns them. Woe to you, Corson. And some of you who are like spelling fanatics are like, wait a minute. It's it's got a C in one and a K in another. You goofed up. No, it's a Hebrew word transliterated into Greek, transliterated into English. There's no right way to do it, as with most words. (laughs) Language is a fluid thing. Even spell check doesn't get it right all the time. Um, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. By the way, woe is a term of condemnation. Right? Woe is a term of damnation, really. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon uh, were, were up the coast, north of Caesarea, pagan cities, cities that the Old Testament prophets were constantly condemning. And, and now, now, is Jesus saying that the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida were evil, vile, uh, doing wicked things? No, they were, they were synagogue-going morally upright, hard-working, blue-collar people. But they are more wicked. What could be more wicked than to be apathetic toward Christ? What could be more, more wicked than to yawn and to just be a bored suburban Christian? How insulting. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
my new hometown? Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell, to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, you know, Sodom, where the Sodomites were, right? It would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What does Jesus find more appalling than the gross perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah? Apathy. The apathy of semi-religious people that you might find in Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida and Batavia and Geneva and Elburn and Maple Park. How insulting to be bored with the Lord. You know, the most famous sermon that has been preached in the last 300 years, anybody know what it is? Elvis, you know. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? By Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Edwards, who lived before the Revolutionary War in America, was very troubled by the fact that so many in his church and in colonial America were all churchgoers, but they were apathetic churchgoers. Lukewarm, unconverted. So he pressed home the reality that if you're unconverted, you are under the wrath of God. And you can take no comfort from being in church. Right? Um, here in, oh, by the way, by the way, let me come back to that. Um, today, that's Capernaum, that's Chorazin. It's deserted. He cursed these cities. And you know what you find there? Cats. Place is crawling with cats. Right, Josh? <laughs> All right, so Josh, we went to <laughs> we went to Israel once and uh, we lost Josh by the Sea of Galilee. And um, about an hour later he comes home. Like, Josh! Where were you? I was talking to these Jewish people. (laughs) Like you were counseling some elderly Jewish man or something. Right. Oh, okay. So Josh was listening to an elderly Jewish man who claimed he could reach in and pull the heart out of a person. All right, so that was the first half hour. So then we go, all right, so then where were you? He goes, well, I was looking for you, and then the cats came. (laughs) Like 30 feral cats descended upon Josh. And he goes, of course, I had to pet them all. (laughs) So animal lovers, you're going to love it if you ever go there. Okay. Um, so, so it is interesting. Jesus curses these three cities, and 
there are ruins there. There are these synagogues there. In fact, they did build, build a church over Peter's house. Um, but there's, there's no life. A living parable. Okay? So back to Jonathan Edwards. Um, here, you, you are either in verse 4 or verse 5 of, of Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So, so um, have you received the kindness of Christ? Have you realized you're a sinner and you deserve to go to hell, but Christ was nailed to a cross to pay for your sins and you've trusted in him and you've received his kindness? But if not, guess what verse describes you? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you're not saved, you may be a churchgoer. You may be very involved in church. But this verse says the wrath of God is is over your head. Now, what Edwards did was he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, people get offended by that, but you know what? If the wrath of God is hanging over your head, yes, his kindness is holding it back for now, but at any moment, he could let it go, and it falls on you. And what keeps you from falling into hell any second? Nothing but his mercy. So let me, let me read part of the sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear, uh, than to, bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel, rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night that you was suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. That's what I call seeker-friendly preaching right there. Here's the question. Is it true? If you are unconverted and lukewarm and apathetic and unconverted... 
Does the wrath of God hang over your head? And what prevents you from dropping into hell this very second? Nothing but the mercy of God. So, Jesus said, Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for your apathy. Repent and flee to Christ for salvation. You have no confidence that you will take another breath. What are you waiting for? So, by the way, I've had a young lady ask me, I'd like to be baptized. I said, let me see if anybody else, why wouldn't you get baptized? What? <laughs> Is he your Lord or not? What do you, I, I, well, I meant to read my Bible. Lukewarm, he will spew you out of his mouth And if you were to die today without Christ, you would fall right into the pit of hell for eternity. Flee to Christ, who is a merciful God. He died to pay for your sin. But if you, like the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, are apathetic and bored with him, you will spend eternity under the woe of God. Flee to him because he is a merciful God. Let me know if you'd like to be baptized. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the cross. I pray that you would terrify us with the thought of going to hell. And I pray that we would find relief no place else but in your arms those arms that were pierced with nails to fully pay for our sin. Lord, weed out apathy. May we repent of religiosity. Fill us with fire for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.